I'm on this earth to evolve. My soul has to get better in this life journey, right? And so where I wish somebody told me growing up that there's going to be adversity in life because what we actually are told and what we expect is life's going to be easy. I'm going to grow up and get a job and make a lot of money and be rich and live happily ever after. Welcome to The Change, where we share stories and inspiration from servant leaders working to normalize the mental health conversation and increase empathy in the workplace. I'm your host, Adam Baru. It's been almost a year since I started working on this podcast. In that time, I've had the great pleasure of speaking with true game changers, people making a difference in leadership, mental health awareness, authenticity, and even trauma healing. I've been incredibly inspired by the conversations I've had on this podcast, and so I've decided to narrow the focus of the change by focusing on stories of servant leaders working to destigmatize the mental health conversation and increase empathy and emotional intelligence in business. We all know the old saying, the only constant in life is change. So let us introduce someone who is honoring their authenticity as a servant leader with heart and humanity. Corey White, welcome to The Change. Wow, Adam, I love that intro. Yes, thank you for having me. This is exciting. Awesome, yeah, I'm super excited you're here. All right, so you know the drill, you've done this before. Let's start with the basics. Who is Corey White? And also, if you would uh, take us to where things all started for you. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, I'm gonna try to give a nice abbreviated version, uh, but I've been doing cybersecurity for 27 years, but that's not who I am. It, what it, who I am is an authentic person outside of that and still growing and learning in authenticity mm-hmm. because I don't think you ever like get there like, Hey, I'm authentic. Got a checkbox. No, it's not that simple. <laughs> nope. Right. Uh, Cause every single day there are life lessons that, that I learn and, and I try to evolve and grow in that. But what I've done is I've merged the two together because I, I grew up in, in, in the you seventies know, and eighties when I got into the business world in the nineties then the the mindset was, oh, well, this is the this is the business work, Corey. You have to put on that persona and be a business person. And then your home and outside work is a totally different person. And in my life, I've realized that's really hard to do and also somewhat stressful because mm-hmm. you got to pretend to be something that you're not in the business world. So our company, Savitar, I started this so that not only myself, but every employee can show up authentically. Now, there's a caveat to this. Um, you cannot show up and be an asshole, okay? Uh, mm-hmm. But you can show up authentically and be you. Like, um, you know, our business, we don't judge you based on how you look or talk or, you know, you got tattoos, whatever. We don't care. We want you authentically doing mm-hmm. what makes you happy. And so that's one of the reasons why we started this business. The other thing is cybersecurity. Um, cybersecurity as an industry was not being authentic. And so I, after doing it for 23 and a half years, I realized there has to be a better way because the number of hacks are going up and, and the spend in cybersecurity is going up, but something isn't tied together. It's a very immature industry that is not focused on the end customer getting to an outcome of being secure. And so I built the business in a subscription model. And again, I love the title, the change. How do we change this for the better mm-hmm. and improve society and our members? So that's kind of my why. That's how we got here with, with Cyvatar and myself after 27 years in cybersecurity. All right. So you and I grew up in the same era. We're both Gen Xers growing up in the 70s. So we had Dabney, Col- uh, is it Dabney Coleman, that actor, and the, all those war game movies. Um, uh, you know, yeah. I, it was it War Games itself with uh, Matthew Broderick, I think? Yep, yep, 100%. Yeah, so um, I'm curious how you actually, you know, got into cybersecurity. Like, what led you there? Um, I, you know, for me, looking looking at this, I see a lot of people kind of from our generation growing up at the time that we did, you know, that uh, it kind of is no surprise, you know, when people kind of end up in those roles, kind of growing up in the era that we did. But yeah, tell me what it was like for you. How did How did you... How did you get there into cybersecurity? Well, it's interesting because it didn't start with cybersecurity because that did not exist back in those days, right? Right. 
so it um, it started with you know I never forget I got my first computer I want to say it was like eighty three or so my both my parents were teachers and uh, my dad had this IBM computer that was there it was just sitting there mm-hmm. and they weren't actually using it and so he brought it home <laughs> and so he, he had to take it back at the end of the school year but he brought it home and so I'm sitting there on this you know you know, you know, IBM with a CRT and the green screen, all that stuff. Yep. Um, typing in like basic programs and and doing all kind of you know cool little programs. But for me, it was magic. You could take this computer and create anything. And so it was interesting. Um, one of the things that I've realized about my life because my dad was also in construction. He loved building things. He could build anything. Mm-hmm. But I'm also that person. I love building and creating new things. I took a really cool test called the spark type test that a friend of mine, Jonathan Fields does. And I turned out to be a maker. I like to create things. That's my passion. So as a kid, my, my passion was creating things. Then when computers came and I could create programs and build things, that was really, really interested. And that got me hooked. And so how I got into cybersecurity is when I graduated from school with a CIS degree, um, my first job was at Microsoft supporting Windows 94, 95. And uh, it was August 24th, 1995. It was the first computer, uh, first computer operating system that had a TCP IP stack, mm-hmm. okay, that could connect to the internet. So Internet Explorer 1.0 and Exchange 1.0, all that was my first gig. So I got exposed to it there. Then my next gig in consulting my, my job was connecting companies, large global companies, to the internet because nobody knew anything about it. Mm-hmm. So I did that. Then the next step was, uh, wait a second, you guys need a firewall. So I put in the first Cisco PIX firewall back in 1997. Mm-hmm. Uh, so, so that's how I got into security. Next thing I know, I'm the security guy. <laughs> it's so you know interesting to think back to that time, like the concept of even a firewall, you know, like... I, it was like the wild west of the internet back then like nobody really had a game there wasn't really much game planning going on it was more kind of like responding to events that were happening you know yeah yeah for sure <laughs> all right so when we last spoke i shared some of my own imposter syndrome with you and you mentioned experiencing this yourself but you described imposter syndrome as more of like a fronting syndrome so what did you mean by that well it, it's interesting that we talk about imposter syndrome, but in, in this, this world, I, I want people to realize, this is what I've realized, um, and you talk about change, so you should always be changing and involving and growing. So if that's the mindset, you're, you're never actually an imposter, okay? Mm. So you know, this is my first time being CEO. I've run and built organizations before, but... Like I could say I'm, I'm an imposter because I've never been a CEO before. Mm-hmm. But the, the challenge in life is that we all should be evolving and growing and pushing. Because if you're not pushing, then you actually are going backwards. Um, Dr. Joe Depenza, um, he he's an amazing guy. He, he talks about that. And when I was you know, about 34, 35, he said the average person, they stop growing new synaptic pathways and their brain, because they get settled in. You're like, oh, well, I drink red wine. Or I take you know, vacations, I go to the beach, I go to the beach locations. And you end up doing the same thing over and over again. You're not challenging yourself to grow. When I heard that, I was like, oh my God, like, I got to keep growing. So the real answer is, you're never actually an imposter. You should always be pushing the envelope and doing new things. And so that whole imposter syndrome, I think, is, is just something that we've created, in my mind, I see it as more of a limitation to say, hey, I'm an imposter. For this. Everybody that has been doing something for a long time, they had their first time doing it. So it, it, to me, I don't think of it that way. Yeah, absolutely. Um, the first two episodes of The Change, we spoke about emotional courage. It was just kind of getting out of your comfort zone, um, kind of with the focus of, you know, you know, where you've had mental blocks, where you've had limitations, your own limitations that have prevented you to from going forward and and you know for the most part it's fear-based and and i get it it makes sense i've been there um i mean personally you know in my career i started out in college um doing environmental studies and then um while going to school i worked for the national park service and then i got into it and then i was a wedding photographer and and so i've kind of 
I, I can fully attest to the statement you just made because, you know, for me, the majority of growth in my life has been when I've pushed myself. And at times it's been an explicit thing that I set out to do where I kind of, I, I, I saw that I was held back and I saw that I was living based on fear in certain areas. And, uh, so it's important to do that now. I, and I also completely get what you're saying around imposter syndrome. Um, everybody that's going to be in a new situation they haven't been in before, I think is going to feel that. And so, you know, is it imposter syndrome or is it just adapting to some new situation where perhaps you're a little fearful. And so I think it's the fear really um, that is wrapped around this concept of imposter syndrome. But, you know, it is um, at least the the consequences of that imposter syndrome are something that should be taken note of, because if you have the self-awareness to kind of recognize, you know, what's happening with you, if you're feeling a certain way about what you're doing, it's that self-awareness I, for me, I think is the key to kind of recognize, okay, you know, yes. I mean, what I'm doing is new to me. Like I don't need for me, at least, you know, I've, I've spoken about this on, on this podcast, you know, in, in five and a half years ago when I founded sweet centric, I, I was never a CEO before. So I think for the first few years, I really struggled. I just, di- I did not have the self-awareness to recognize, you know, the aspects about my personality and my skill set that were true and and that I felt are my calling, I, I didn't really recognize those. And, and so it made me think that I had to be something that I wasn't. And that's where the resistance in that, the anxiety that was built up because there was conflict internally with me, fighting, just trying to understand my identity. Um, and so it wasn't, yeah, it's it's really interesting. Imposter syndrome um, on another podcast that I produce. One of the guests um, didn't like that term and, and prefers to use the word imposterism, which is, you know, I think she was just kind of defining just the act of what happens and not, you know, when you hear syndrome, it's kind of like, you know, something, a condition that you have to deal with, you know, um, but it all, you know, again, it just really comes down to the self-awareness and then having having the courage to say, you know what, I, I don't have to have all the answers and that's okay. I think, you know, in the business world, you know, being a better leader, what I realized last year, being a better leader wasn't in knowing everything there is about NetSuite, which is the platform that my consulting agency works on. Um, it wasn't, you know, having to be all charismatic and be that, CEO that you see on TV, it's really just being vulnerable. That's where I've learned is the power of leadership is showing vulnerability and providing a safe space for my team to to be themselves, to show up in their authentic selves. So again, I think it kind of, for me, I I look at self-awareness as really where that's the thing you should strive towards because that's going to allow you to be your authentic self, right? Yeah, 100% agree. And with, with an example I'll give, and this is just something that hit me. Um, you heard my story about getting started in 1995. Well, when I started, Web 1 came out. But guess what they didn't teach in school? Internet, nothing. TCPIP, nothing. So when I got out of school, I had to learn that. So I'm spending my nights in, you know, Denny's, you know, eating Grand Slams and that endless coffee because, <laughs> you know, reading books, I get bored and I'll fall asleep if I was sitting at home or distracted. So I had to get out of the house. Mm-hmm. But I learned Web 1. So I was at South by Southwest a few weeks ago and I'm talking to all of these Web 3 metaverse NFT people and I'm explaining a few things. Number one, well, you can do Web 3. But if you ignore web one, web two basic hacks, then like phishing, then you're still going to get hacked. Okay. Um, But Mm -hmm. what I learned is I asked everybody, they they were so knowledgeable about all these new things that I didn't know a lot about. And I'm learning. I'm I'm like studying now. I'm not going to the Denny's, but I am studying. Uh, My new Denny's is a plane. When I'm on a plane, (laughs) I'm I'm learning. Um, But the point of it is I had to learn web one outside of college. And so I spent a lot of time learning that. And so I have a choice. I could say, hey, I've been doing this 27 years. I know cybersecurity. I'm not going to learn Web3. Or 
do I challenge myself and say, I'm going to learn Web3 and, and keep on learning? And I think that's what we all have to do is not be afraid of it. Oh, my God, there's this new thing. You know, there's, there's, there's the metaverse and I'm scared. No, no, no. Go into it and just learn it just like you did when you were younger. I think well, we make these limitations upon ourselves, but we got to realize that we got to go and face these challenges. And the last thing you know, I'll talk about fear, what I've learned is, yeah, we're always going to be afraid. Even the most courageous people out there, they are afraid. Right. But the fear only happens before. Once you get to the other side, then it's nothing to be afraid of. You've already passed it. And so you literally have to still do it and then get to the other side. And then it's nothing to be afraid of. You're like, oh, I did that. I survived. Maybe I wasn't great at it, but I survived. And then you're okay and ready to do it again. And there's, there's a great book um, by uh, Stephen Kotler um, from Impossible. Um, and it talks about the possibility and it breaks down fear and the science behind getting over that, that hurdle. And it was just brilliant the way he explained it. Yeah, I mean, I, I understand fear and I understand the resistance to it because um, it's hard. I mean, it's scary. It's, you know, makes you be vulnerable and that's uncomfortable in, in many areas. But uh, like I just mo- you know mentioned moments ago, that's where most of the growth has been in my life. Um, were there hard times in, in confronting that fear? Absolutely. But, you know, I think you hit the nail on the head. You know, fear. I think we fight against it so much. There's so much internal conflict because we think we have to fight fear. We think that fear shouldn't have a place within our mental landscape. But fear, it can be such a powerful tool when you recognize it and you allow it but you don't let it guide you but you allow it to be there and you try to learn from it and you try to work with it because it's that thing that's pushing you towards you know expanding yourself and expanding your self-awareness so you know for for those that have encountered fear and and have you know dealt with a lot of conflict trying to shove it away I encourage you to maybe rethink that belief system that fear is bad. And, you know, I'll turn it over to you in a second. But one of one of our guests that we had previously, her name is Samantha J. She has a business model where, you know, she's advocating um, to allow our inner business emperor and empress to guide us in entrepreneurship and leadership and she has a book called Stand Up, Speak Up that that talks a lot about her methodology. And I, I really think it's a it's a fantastic methodology. And in that book, she describes the sabotaging drama king and queen within us that is out to fight against the other important work that we're doing. It's just adding drama. It's this fear. You know, it's based on fear. And so she talks a lot about, you know, don't fight it. Just recognize the drama king and queen within you is there and work with it and allow it. And it's simple to say, I know there's, you know, a lot of conflict around getting to that point where recognizing that, that fear can be our friend, but, um, you know, are, are there other times in your life where, you know, you've kind of made the same or similar type of, you know, revelation where, you know, you kind of recognize that you were perhaps, you know, making a decision in a kind of a fear-based way and, and uh, you were able to kind of see that and, and make decisions that allowed you to grow? Yeah, yeah. So um, a few things, and I'm going to go deep on, on this one here. Yes, um, please. <laughs> okay. When, when I was, uh, my first gig, when I was working for Microsoft, I, I realized how, how much fear held me back. And, and this is 1995, 96 timeframe. And I printed out on, on the computer... Uh, this little sign and had it from my desk right in front of me. I was staring at it all the time and it simply said, I have no fear. Um, <laughs> and I did that for, you know, several months. It was right there and I kind of, you know, chanted and to myself, you know, in my spare time, like I have no fear. But I realized I started pushing the envelope so much it actually scared me. I was like, oh my God, I got to take this sign down a little bit. But it, it helped me. I was so focused on overcoming it. Mm-hmm. Now, the other thing that I'm going to pivot to where, where we go deep I've uh, I've been doing a lot of you know I, I read extensively, but you know just the concept of having a soul 
depending on what people believe in, but at the end of the day, having a soul, you know, what I've realized, at least for me, is that I'm on this earth to evolve. My soul has to get better in this life journey, mm-hmm. right? And so where I wish somebody told me growing up that there's going to be adversity in life because what we actually are told and what we expect is life's going to be easy. I'm going to grow up and get a job and make a lot of money and be rich and live happily ever after. Nobody says that you should appreciate and embrace the adversity mm-hmm. because here's the thing, Adam, I, I've had you know, bad autoimmune diseases and you know, stomach ulcers and arthritis, mm-hmm. all kinds of stuff in my 20s. Really, really, really sick. But, you know, hit 30 years later, I'm a biohacker and, and in really, really good shape and health. If I never went through that, I would not be as healthy as I am right now. And I'm very happy with my, my health level and, and where I am right now. So that helped me. I had also, throughout all that process, I had to become mentally strong if i didn't have the adversity i wouldn't be mentally strong mm-hmm. okay exactly and you think you you take my professional career of uh, just being a, a minority executive sometimes i didn't get the opportunities mm-hmm. and you know and you don't even know why you just sometimes it is not there mm-hmm. so i had to work hard to be better i had nothing was given to me ever but you know now i'm a ceo i'm happy for where i'm at but still nothing is never given there's no easy path but I'm very happy where I'm at. If I didn't have that adversity and I could go through a lot more, all of it shaped me all the mm-hmm. way from losing my mom when I was in my early 20s. Mm-hmm. That shaped me. It was really, really hard, but it made me stronger. It made me persevere. It made me go out there and be able to take care of myself. There was no backup plan. So if we actually told everybody, which you know, I'll, I'll, I'm telling my kids and kind of leading them through this is that the adversity you go through, that's what makes you better. So you can get to the other side and you have to keep continually learning to improve. But if you have it easy, we've all seen, you know, the, the rich kid that has everything and then they turn out to be nothing because mm-hmm. there's no challenge in their life. Right. And so the challenges is what makes us good. It makes us better to learn from. And so if, if people were to go into life and expect that challenge, then... It, it makes you better. It's the other side. And I'm not a biblical person, but um, one of the things I heard a really good Baptist preacher say this, and I loved it. We all are probably familiar with, with Psalm 23. But when he says, if you notice, he went through the valley. He didn't stay in the valley. And I remember hearing this like probably 30 years ago. I'm like, oh my God, he's right. You go through it. Things happen in our lives. You go through them. You come out on the other side. So you have to expect to come out on the other side with the wisdom of what you went through and use that, you know, for the rest of your life. And I love, love that concept. You know, we spend so much time as parents teaching these hard skills like reading and math and all this stuff and, and, you know, things that we think are the best way to prepare our children for the world. And I don't know why, but a lot of that is really focused around career and job, right? Um, which, you know, it's important to be able to take care of yourself and provide um, for yourself and your family. But, you know, I, I really think as parents, what's the best way we can prepare our children for the future and the world that they're going to live in with all of the changes that are expected? And that's being able to understand that the world is a challenging place filled with adversity that you're going to deal with day in and day out. There's, there's going to be roadblocks there's going to be hurdles. These are character building. And so perhaps, you know, as parents, if we spent more time preparing our children to know that that's going to be part of life and to, you know, build their response systems and and how they respond to stress and anxiety where, hey, listen, these things are expected and you're going to get through the other side and, and adversity is there to teach us. And, you know, when we when we're not fighting against it all the time, it could be such a great tool for learning. I think it's so important that parents, you know, work to prepare their children, you know, with that skill set, you know, prioritizing that even over, 
you know, things that are learned in school. And even I think it's important for schools to kind of focus on, hey, you know, life is hard. It's fun and it's good. And, and you have to work towards making sure that you keep your head in the game. And, and even having it be fun can be work. But, you know, understand that life is going to be full of challenges and that's OK. That, that's kind of it's that's kind of how it's always worked out. Right. Yeah. And let me touch on that as a parent and a uh, disclaimer, I am uh, definitely not a parenting expert, but there's a few <laughs> <Nor> things. <am> that, <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, you know, I'll say all this stuff and they could go the hill, go around. I'm sure my but, wife is hearing me say this and just like, what? That, those are my words. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, you know, what, what I've learned just from myself is that a few things, if you look at the educational system, both my parents were teachers growing up, okay? But they sent me to private school. And I remember being a kid asking, you guys are public school teachers. Why did you send me to private school? And they didn't really answer. They just said, yeah, exactly. And, and so now being an adult, I, I get it. And I, I, you research the public school system. It was built in, in, the, in the 30s, right? And, and the mindset was we need factory workers. So they essentially trained everybody the exact same way, right? So you could go and work on an assembly line. But last time I checked, nobody's going to work in a factory. And, and so the, the system that we have at, in, in public schools, which I get, we can't change because it's so, you can't, this doesn't apply to everybody. And, it, and it's very hard to go and revamp a whole public school system. Uh, but what we ended up doing was ripping our kids out of the public school system. And, oh, huge kudos to my wife and um, for homeschooling our kids. Mm-hmm. But, you know, they're able to get through the curriculum so much faster. Um, they're at, you know, really, really high levels across the board. They're learning stuff, you know, now at nine that I learned in high school. And, wow. and it's just effortless. And the other thing, which, you know, is, is something that I didn't even think about or estimate, but they spend their extra time uh, they're accomplished ice skaters at nine. Wow. <laughs> they, yeah, they, um, they, they make their own clothing. They go to fashion camp. Very cool. And so when they go to school, think about this. They go to school with the clothes that they have made sometimes, right? Some we buy, but some of the clothes that they've made. And so when I was nine, I really, really cared about what everybody else thought. Mm-hmm. And so I tried to buy the in, in fashion stuff and everything else. But you know, their clothes isn't necessarily perfect because uh, they made it themselves. But in homeschooling, nobody cares. Mm-hmm. And their twins, they don't care what other people think. And nine, I cared what other people thought. I had to get approval from other people. And it took me, you know, 30 something years to get to the point where I could not care what people think anymore. And it took a long time. So what we are trying to do, what if you could grow up and not care what other people think, be an individual, know what your your innate skills are. Like one of my kids is really artsy and creative and she literally covered colors outside the lines all the time. My other one is analytical and detail oriented and loves puzzles. And so we know what those skill sets are. So we're just trying to figure out, you know, expose them to as much as they can so they can figure out what what's gonna make them happy in life. And so it it's a new way to think about, you know, raising kids. Uh, but it's it's worked well for me because I was that rebel. <laughs> I was that mm-hmm. rebel in, in college and in high school as well. And not like doing bad things, but I just didn't agree with the school system because it, growing up when your parents have the teacher's manual uh, mm-hmm. for some of those classes that you're in. Yep. And, you know, not that I, I cheated, but I knew the answer. But the answer didn't actually some of the, the, the questions were really, really subjective right. based upon your experience and what you see in my experience, I never forget when I was eighth grade, I, I got sent to the office, unfortunately, but the, the teacher was reading and, and, and then we had the story you read at night and then she asked questions about it. She said, why did they call little Johnny and had his really long, complicated last name? Why did they call him by his full name? And I said, because they had a funny last name. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then the teacher's like, no, 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 they didn't know him very well. I was like, huh? Mm-hmm. Well, in my neighborhood, if that's your last name, they're going to call you by your whole name and tease <laughs> you about that all the time. And I was like, is that what the book says? And uh, obviously, being a teacher's kid, you know that. And she got mad when I said that. 
textbook says, but but it is not textbook. Like it, life is not textbook, and that's what we're taught. And and there's a really good NASA study where NASA was trying to find um, um, a way to build new rockets, and so their problem was nobody was creative. And then they did the study on on kids at like five years old, and their creativity was like in the high nineties. By the time they were in high school, it was less than 5%. So the construct of the school system ends up sucking out that creativity right. to make everybody exactly the same. Yep. Then you get into the real world, then when you're like, wait a second, if I'm just like everybody else, I, I don't stand out. I don't have any you know, differentiating thing about me. And I'm a big music guy. You look at you know, big music artists, you look at you know, Lady Gaga and Prince and everybody. These are individual people doing their own thing. They don't care what other people think. And that led to their success. Mm-hmm. And so it ends up working against us, teaching everybody to be exactly the same. Super interesting. You know, you gave me a, a really good segue for kind of where I wanted to go with this. But before I go there, I definitely want to give shout out to your wife and and for all of the parents that are homeschooling. Um, I, I think it's a for me as an outsider to it. Um, it seems like such a really incredible commitment and, uh, you know, what, what a gift, um, that you guys are giving to your children. Yes. Yes. Thank you for saying that. Absolutely. So, you know, conformity, that's, that's kind of the theme I, I wrote down as you were speaking that word. Um, you know, it's really interesting that we do celebrate, you know, we do look up to and kind of idolize these musicians and people that, that are really unique in their own way. And, and, and that's, you know, kind of the source of their success yet in business and in school, it's all about conformity, right? It's all about fitting in and doing what everybody else does, which is crazy that, you know, that that's kind of the belief system that our society has adopted. And so, you know, where I wanted to go with this was talking about ego. And I'm curious, you know, if you see a connection between conformity and where ego shows up, especially in the tech industry, you know, the tech industry can be notorious for a lot of ego. I've experienced it in my career. Um, you know, for me as a software developer, um, there, there's, there's always a lot of ego between different people's personalities. So how have you experienced ego in your tech career and where do you see that relationship between ego and conformity? Yeah. Yeah. Wow. That's a great topic. Um, Everybody has an ego. We all start out with that. And at least in my you know, life, I've had to learn how to you know, rip it apart and tear it down. And thankfully, I've had life events that, that have done that for me. You know, whenever you think you're, you're, you're the, the, the top shit, then, oh, mm-hmm. something will happen and it will tear you down so quickly. Right. So um, <laughs> I've definitely had that happen. And you realize that you know, you don't take yourself too seriously. Right. Um, you know, what, what helped me on that journey is, is, uh, Eckhart Tolle reading the power of now. Yeah. And, and, you know, just some, I, I had to, it was one of those few books I had to read and actually literally rethink everything. And you, you take, for instance, like, you know, the, the, the seven deadly sins and, and pride in, in particular, right? Like I grew up, my dad and we work construction and then he, and if I didn't do a good job at it, he like, son, don't you have any pride in your work? And, and, and so, you know, I was just always taught that that was a good thing. But then I learned that pride is an ego-based thing. You hear people say, swallow your pride. But then I had to learn that, um, yeah, you do have to swallow your pride in, in so many situations and not let that, that guide you. And so when I right. read that, that book probably around 15 years ago, I had to really, really rethink everything, and it helped me tremendously to start removing the ego from from everything. And now, you know, how does that relate to the tech industry? Well, the tech industry is pretty interesting in, in running this business, where you know, in the tech industry, is all about showing how smart you are. Hey, I know tech better than you. And think about penetration testing. I'm a better penetration tester. Than, than you are. So I hacked into this network and, and got domain admin you know, faster than anybody else. Well, if you really, really you know, double click on that, the reason why companies do um, penetration testing is, and this is, you know, ties back into um, you know, look at, you know, first principle thinking. You do a penetration test to figure out where your company may be vulnerable so if so, and so you can fix those vulnerabilities. And so 
the penetration test is a one-time activity. 50 new vulnerabilities come out every single day. Every pen- penetration tester has different methodologies. So he, may, he or she may find one thing, but then another thing could be there and more come every single day. So that's not the best way to see how your company can be um, you know, compromised and how to fix it because your ultimate goal and first, first principle thinking is take it down to the core and build it up to the actual right solution. So if you look at it at the core, you want to be secure. So you got to build up to actually being secure. And the easiest way to be secure is to make sure you don't have any vulnerabilities at all. So continually scan and patch your systems. Make sure you have multi-factor authentication. Make sure that you have um, you know, proper endpoint protection, block, blocking the execution of malware. Those are the basics. Mm-hmm. And so in the tech industry, we celebrate penetration testing, but penetration testing is an ego-based activity that doesn't actually solve the problem. Mm. Okay. Interesting. And so, and so, you know, that's rampant throughout cybersecurity. You have, you know, you know big companies building up the, the best new cool tech. But if you look at it from a people process and technology perspective, um, I could have, you know, make it non-technical. Say, if I want to secure my house, I go and I buy the best AI door lock, monitoring, camera, everything, all the bells and whistles. And, and then I bring it home to my house. I put all this new AI, newfangled technology on my kitchen counter. Did I secure my house? No, I just bought technology. I just bought a product. And cybersecurity, we just buy products. Oh, this is a cool product. It's going to save the day. Mm-hmm. It doesn't. You still get hacked. You got people process and technology. You need people implementing it, main, managing it, maintaining it, and a process to get to an outcome of actually being secure. And so ego has driven so much in the tech industry to where we want to build a new coolest thing. But the, the answer to solve the problem is actually really simple. And think about your house. Hey, I want to secure my house. I have this, all this cool tech. What if I just make sure my door is closed and locked all the time? What if I just did that? Mm. And in cybersecurity, we don't do that. We'll alert you when something bad happens. We'll sell you amazing products and everything else. But we don't actually just make sure the basics are done. Mm. So it, it really, really is a big problem in the tech industry. All right. So yeah, you gave me a perfect end to talk about Cybitar. Um, so let's shift gears and, and uh, tell us about the work that Cybitar does. Yeah, I, I, I literally just you know, explained it. Let me, let me bring it home. Um, after 23 years of doing running penetration testing teams, doing some of the largest you know, cybersecurity incidents in the world, uh, like when OPM, Office of Personnel Management, that is the personnel management you know, division for our U.S. government. Uh, this happened in 2016. You can you know, Google uh, my previous company, Silence and, and OPM. It's all public information. We testified in front of Congress and so on and so forth. But here's the thing. What if instead of responding to these incidents, instead of doing penetration testing, back to, again, first principle thinking, it doesn't actually solve the problem. Um, we made a ton of money. <laughs> Adam mm-hmm. made a ton of money responding to incidents. It, that money is there. Mm-hmm. But if you lead with love and actually care about your customers, if you just help them to patch their systems, um, secure them in a, a efficient way, like we have a guarantee of 90 days or less that you'll get your systems patched, you know, scan patched on a continuous basis because cybersecurity is not a one-time activity. I used to do one-time assessments. Then, then, you know, they're obsolete the next day. Mm-hmm. So we had to build a subscription model where we're continually doing it. And, and last time I checked, most of my customers, they don't have a um, malware analysis team. <laughs> okay. Mm-hmm. So if I created some brand new malware and I called it winword.exe and put the you know, Microsoft logo on, on the icon, most people are going to think it's Microsoft Word, but it's a keylogger, keylogging access into all your systems. And if you have a Web3 you know, set up and I can get access to your you know, crypto wallet because I'm key logging every stroke. I see everything. So it's, it's really, really simple to solve this problem. Um, and that's what we did. We made cybersecurity into a subscription-based business. We, we democratize we, the scanning, external scanning. That's free. Okay. Mm-hmm. And we used to charge a ton of money for that. Um, cybersecurity policies that every company needs, that's free. Log into our platform. You get that for free. Um, we don't charge you to tell you what is wrong. We charge you to fix it and maintain it. So 
think of it like you're an auto mechanic, right? I, I know I need to get my brakes done. I need to get a tune up. I take it to the auto mechanic. And then um, he comes back with a detailed report of all the issues wrong with my car and tells me exactly how to you know, change the spark plugs right. and, uh, <laughs> and fix my brakes and everything else. But he doesn't fix it. And he charges me 5,000 bucks. Wow. Yeah. That is a security assessment. That's a security assessment. We do that all day long and doesn't solve the problem. So we're one of the few industries, I can't think of another one that is that backwards mm-hmm. in the value prop. So Savitar solves that. Okay. Um, so in your LinkedIn profile, you said your leadership style is focused on an employee first approach because I've seen the positive impact of happy employees and a great culture on customers. So can you tell us more about how you lead and what you learned as you grew to be a, an employee-focused leader? Yeah, yeah absolutely. Um, and there's so many references about it now, but I think when you first get into business, you see all these companies say, customer first, customer first. Mm-hmm. Well, that doesn't work. Because uh, imagine if you work for a customer first company, but you know, your, your bosses are mean to you. They're, they're assholes. The culture sucks. Mm-hmm. Are you actually caring about the customer? Can you take care of a customer if you're disgruntled and not happy with the place you work? Mm-hmm. No. But imagine if you are happy with the place you work, not disgruntled, your boss has your back, then it is easy for you to take care of, in our case, we call them members, your, your members. So, you know, it, most people don't think of it this way. You know, Simon Sinek talks a lot about this in, in his uh, TED Talk. But yeah, you've got to take care of your employees first. Mm-hmm. And I was just reading a stat around successful companies. Um, employee first is the way to do it. Then customer second, because your employees take care of your customers. Absolutely. So that is absolutely important. But also the last thing I share with that is I've been that employee um, and I've seen where you know, your your bosses don't have your back, and then you're sometimes you know, you're stuck, and 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 you don't want to take care of your your customers at that point. You're worried about politics and right. and whose ass I need to kick, kiss to not kick, um, but kiss to to make sure I'm doing well. <laughs> right, so maybe but, sometimes you need to kick it, but <laughs> yeah, probably both. But but um, no, no, I don't want anybody in our company worrying about. All of that, and not to say everything is always perfect, but it, we strive to get things resolved and have everyone comfortable in in this company, and and that's what I mean by that. Every single employee, day one, they have my cell phone. I call them, welcome into the company, and we have this similar conversation so that I'm always available to them to support them. And then ultimately, the last thing I say is that um, my job is to hire the best exec team I possibly can. And that means I'm freed up, you know, and my, my mm-hmm. co-founder, you know, Craig Goodwin, who is amazing as well. We're freed up to be there supporting our employees. It's having their back. But if I'm too busy in the weeds, I can't do that. Yeah. Yeah. That's important. That's an important distinction. That's kind of where I was uh, up until I realized, you know, la- early last year, I, you know, I'm not really going to be able to do the things I want to do in my company until I get myself out of the weeds. And, you know, there, I had to make an investment around that, you know, it's, I had to, hire some expensive people to kind of take over some things I was doing, but it's important. And I completely echo what you're saying. Um, you know, we, we have that employee first mentality at my company. Um, but at the same time, we don't sacrifice customer service. Like customer service is, is, you know, very important to us. And and so the way that we get there is yeah, taking care of the team first. And so we do things like we just started it. We just started it. So it's not something, you know, I can proclaim we've been doing forever, but corporate meditation. So now on Thursday mornings, we have um, a session. It's, you know, the company, there's no expectation that employees have to use their PTO or whatever. It's like on our dime, you know, like take a half an hour if you'd like. We've got this online meditation session. It's a good way to just kind of get your 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 body and your mind ready for the day, both, you know, professionally and and in your personal life for whatever may come. And that's just one way to do it. Um, another thing that we're, you know, kind of working to put in place, um, our better supports systems around our remote workforce, you know, that's kind of a work in progress, but you know, remote, there's, there's so many caveats around 
a distributed workforce model and how to support those employees. And, you know, we're striving to be very invested in, in trying to support our remote employees better. But what is what do you guys do? What are some things like with your, you know, your leadership approach and your employee first approach? What are some actual things that you guys are doing, you know, beside the open door policy that you have um, where that shows up? Yeah. Um, first and foremost, um, I want you to share after this the the details around your meditation. I meditate. I encourage students to meditate, uh, but we don't do it as a group. And, and mm-hmm. so, um, you know, definitely share that, that the, the continuous learning aspect. I'd love to mm-hmm. the people open to that and incorporate that into what we do. Um, <clears throat> two things. It was interesting. I, I'll tell you know, at least one quick story. But at, at my last company, every single um, you know, a lot of people on my, my floor at the 11, on the 11th floor, we had salt lamps, right? Mm-hmm. And, and if, if you've ever had a big one in a small room or gone to a salt cave, you can actually feel the, the difference. It's just a different energy mm. level. Okay. Um, and so it, you know, being a, a Zen kind of company, um, this is things that I do. Everybody gets day one. They get a very, very nice bottle of wine. Um, and, they get their own salt lamp. So the, the, the company, everybody is remote. Uh-huh. And so everybody on their desk has their salt lamp uh, right there in front of them. And so uh, that's, that's like a good start and in introduction. And some people are like, I've never worked for a company where day one, we get a nice bottle of wine and a salt lamp and the CEO you know, calls you up. Nice. And then the other thing that we do, which I think is really important is um, transparency and accountability. Mm-hmm. So we've all worked at companies where you'll have somebody that's not carrying their, their weight. And and in companies, especially larger ones, you can hide. You can not be doing your job, not hitting your numbers, and it just nobody knows. Well, we have daily KPI calls as part of our scaling up construct of the business. Mm-hmm. And so we go through marketing KPIs um, sales KPIs, and you'll see, hey, this is number one salesperson. Oh, that person needs work to do. Everything's public. We're not calling anybody out, but you'll see that it is a company dashboard that is available across the board. And so, you know, it used, it's used as a motivational technique, but you can't hide in this company. I can't hide. If there are things that I need to do, then I'm accountable to this company. So we all have responsibilities and everybody has to do their part. Mm-hmm. And so that's how we function so that it's a nice steady flow. And using one of my favorite words is flow state. I literally want everybody in their flow state. And sometimes I'll call up people and ask, hey, I see you're not really in flow. There seems to be something going on. And, and usually I can kind of spot it and have a conversation. And you know, just circling back to love versus fear We've seen employees where you know something isn't right. And mm-hmm. most of the time, people ignore that. They don't you know, check in because what if they say something you don't want to handle, right? right. And you just, you just want to try to hide. That is a fear-based approach. But if you call them up and say, hey, what's going on? I see, hey, your numbers aren't as good. How, how are things, anything I can help with? Nine times out of 10, is something we can help with, something we can figure out. Um, last month, I had an employee that I thought was doing a really, really good job, but there were some areas that just weren't really should have been. And I called the person up and and we talked through it and I, I came up with a really good solution to help them get focused and be more of their flow state and like work in their passion. And at the end of it, um, he came back and said, Corey, thank you. You actually motivated me. I've had this little side project that, you know, could turn into a business, you being an entrepreneur and telling me I need to be in my flow state and focus on that. It gave me courage to say, I'm, I'm going to go and do that. And, and he left the company. Mm. I was very, very happy with that outcome. Like you shouldn't be in your workplace forcing something that is uncomfortable or trying to do something and, and not taking that risk and jumping. So I encourage people to jump and I'd love to lose people because they're going all to pursue their passion and not trying to force it in, into our company and try to do what we want them to do. Do your own thing. So that's, those are a few ways that we're, we're doing that in our company. Lots more we can do and learn, but, but that's a few things we have in place. Yeah. Um, and I, I remember from when we first spoke, uh, you mentioned flow state. So can you describe 
you just for our audience what that is exactly. And then also um, you mentioned about a podcast, uh, I think, that you're about to launch possibly or, or it's underway. Um, Love Hustle Flow, if you would uh, talk about those two things, Flow State and then the podcast. Yeah, yeah, great thing. So um, the podcast, we originally launched it in the fall, but I was struggling trying to find a name for it. And, and I think we called it like circuit breakers and I freaking hated that. So I was like, oh, we can't call it that. Just stop. Let me just think about it. And then, you know, in one of my meditations, I get a lot of stuff comes to me on my meditations. That how do I live my life? I, I try my best. I'm saying, I'm not saying I'm perfect at everything all the time. Look at life and look at people, look at situations through a lens of love. Okay. That's first. Mm-hmm. And then second, hustling is out there trying you got to go and push the envelope and try. There's a lot of people that um, they, they'll, they'll pray or meditate or whatever, but they, they don't do the try part. They don't hustle. They wait for it to come. No, you got to go and try and do that piece. And then once you put it out there and there's science behind this in quantum physics, once you put something out there, you just come back and, and you wait, you flow and you let it, let it come to you. And how that is so powerful is being able to uh, be in that natural flow state and it goes back to what I said originally um, I'm I'm a natural you know maker I love building new things so you're not going to see me you know, you know managing my calendar trying to schedule meetings because I actually truly suck at that and so I have somebody that does that for me but my flow state is you know building creating building a vision and then having really really smart people to make that actually happen and so I think everybody needs to live in, in their flow state. And in our company, I want everybody doing what their, their natural flow is. Because you know, people say, hey, you do what you're passionate about and you never work a day. I truly, truly believe that. And so I want people doing this. This should never be a job. It should always be you doing your natural flow and it's effortless. Because if you have to force it, you're not going to be good at it. 100%. Exactly. All right. So... What are three things you would tell anyone looking to get into a leadership role? Things that, uh, you know, you perhaps learned along the way, but are, you know, the core tenets of leadership. Oh, wow. Um, I don't know if I'll get all the core tenets you know, correct, but I'll tell you what, what works for me. Uh, the first thing I learned is in, in a leadership role, a lot of people, they'll take, oh, this is the best person at doing that job in that group. And they'll make them the manager. Mm-hmm. But those are two separate jobs. Right. Like the, there's a complete flip. You got to learn how to have everybody's back and enable them to be better. So, you know, I, I just relearned and rethought about this, you know, in the past week where there were things that, you know, in, in our company, we weren't doing the way we should have done initially. And I'm thinking, ah, oh, I know how to fix that. And I almost jumped in and did it. And I was like, uh-uh, mm-hmm. uh-uh, I had to stop mm-hmm. and empower and allow the, the team to do it. And you, you take, you know, any basketball reference, you know, Michael Jordan um, or, or Magic Johnson, right? Is those assist and working as a team, which made it successful. And so this is another um, exercise of removing the ego, which, which is important. And, and what, the second thing with leadership, and it kind of ties into the first, is looking at it from the perspective of leading from behind. Like, you're not special. And a lot of people think, oh, I got this title, I'm special. Mm-hmm. You're not. You're just another person with another job, and everybody needs to, to do their job, kind of, to quote Bill Belichick, but do your job. And so it doesn't mean that you tell people what to do. If you're a leader and you have to tell people what to do, I think you failed at being a leader. Absolutely. You know, people, you have to educate them along that, that path. And, and so, you know, that's, that's my second one. And, you know, the third one, you know, again, these all kind of tie in and mm-hmm. is that, you know, you have to learn this. You have to, one of the first things I did when I became a leader is I went to management training for new managers back in 2006. And I was like, Oh, well, I'm gonna be a director running a team. Um, how do you do that? Mm-hmm. One, I went and I read every single book on how to do it. But then two, I, I went to management training and I learned so much. And one of the key things was delegation, learning to delegate to, to people and not take everything on. That is the only way you can scale a business is yeah. that delegation you know, process. Otherwise, you're just doing all the work and going to burn yourself out and the business won't grow. Yes, sir. I, I can attest to that. Um, 
I love it. So tell us what we can expect from Corey White in the next couple of years. What are some things that you're working on? Wow. Okay. Um, here's the thing. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm very much a, a go big or go home kind of guy. Yeah. Like you only it. got this, you got, yeah, you got this one lifetime. Well, if you look at you know, Netflix, right. And no, a lot of people kind of use them as example because they're usually successful, but let's go back to the beginning. Netflix put a billion dollar company of a blockbuster out of business with just a process. Okay. That's all they had. Mm-hmm. You know, a, a process of you getting DVDs sent to your house. Uh, there was not even any streaming capability, but now they're, uh, you know, I think it's 200 billion probably and growing, but it was just a process. Mm-hmm. And so in, in tech, if you don't have any tech um, day one, it is really hard to get investment. It's really hard to build a business. And in Savitar started with a process. Now we have a platform, we have tech, everything else. Now you look at Netflix today, they have content, right? A lot of content. And they have streaming, which the whole industry is copying. And, and you think about back to our, our point around outcomes. Um, you want to have, a, everybody wants an outcome. People need to start thinking in outcome. Because the outcome in, in movies is to actually watch the movie. It's not to say, oh, I bought the best DVD, Blu-ray player. You didn't get to watch the movie, <laughs> you know, or I drove to Target or Walmart and I bought the movie and now I got to come home. And what? It's not about that. I can press a button right now and stream um, any movie I want right now, you know, that is on Netflix or some of these other streaming services. So they actually changed the industry to be more efficient. Mm-hmm. Cybersecurity is still in the dark ages. Um, Cybertar is the company to change this industry to where is more efficient and the outcome in cybersecurity is to be secure, not to buy a product, not to do an assessment, not to have a list of stuff that's wrong, is to actually be secure. So we're going to change the cybersecurity industry so that especially small to medium-sized businesses and we'll get into enterprise as well, um, they actually will get an outcome and the outcome guaranteed in 90 days or less that is unprecedented in cybersecurity but you, that's what we need. And I'll give you one really quick example here. Mm-hmm. Uh, we all got affected by the Equifax hack, okay? And so the Equifax hack, um, they had a server outside their firewall on the DMZ, basically. Um, it, they did, I assume they probably didn't know about the asset. Number one in any cybersecurity program is IT asset management. You can't secure what you don't know you have, mm-hmm. right? And you're like at home, I can't lock my door if I don't know there's a door right there, right? Sure. So same thing. <laughs> Um, so that's number one on the list. And then, you know, second to, to that is um, I need to scan and vulnerability scan everything that's exposed to the Internet because the hackers are scanning you about every two seconds. And so when they see that it is a new vulnerability, they're going to try to exploit it and get onto that system immediately. So if you were scanning and patching, you knew that system was, was vulnerable and then got it patched in a reasonable amount of time, then again, that system doesn't get attacked. And then lastly, when the hackers get onto that system and try to drop their malware onto the system, if you had endpoint protection configured to block the execution of malware, then it probably doesn't get dropped and executed. And then we don't have to monitor our credit scores. Um, So that is a basic thing. And Equifax is a large company. And so when you think if a large company can't get those basics right, then Small to medium size absolutely can't get it right. Mm-hmm. So, a need for a Savitar type of business, cybersecurity as a service, is absolutely needed with a guarantee. And one, okay, I'll say last thing really quickly here, but I think this is important. <laughs> yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Distinct, distinction. Uh, my co founder, Craig, brought this up to me. He says, there's a lot of companies that they do monthly billing and they say a subscription. That's not true subscription. True subscription means you can cancel any time. You know, like if I want to cancel Netflix, Spotify, whatever, I can do that right now. Mm-hmm. Okay. And, and so with, with that cancel anytime uh, ability, the onus is just switch. The onus is on the company to deliver value because if mm-hmm. hey, Netflix stopped giving me good content and, and value, I'm going to stop paying my whatever it is, $19.99 a month or whatever. And so in cybersecurity, we give value first as, as opposed to, you know, putting the customer 
on the line and say, hey, buy this product. And then we'll, we'll walk away and you know, contact you in nine months and try to get a renewal. That's not giving value first. Mm-hmm. And the same thing with a penetration test. You do a penetration test security assessment. You give them the list of stuff wrong. Then they got to go fix it. They still haven't gotten value. So giving value, value, cybersecurity value is absolutely core to what we're bringing to the market. That's awesome. So disrupting the cybersecurity industry with cybersecurity as a service, I think that's phenomenal. And doing it in a sustainable way, an employee first um, mentality, you're as a leader, you're showing that you can disrupt and have a successful business while taking care of your team. So Corey, thanks so much for your time today and for being our guest. It's been great to speak with you and um, hope to have you back again someday. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you so much for the time. You got it. As a transformative servant leader, Corey White is a proven entrepreneur focused on innovating and creating new paradigms in the security industry and life. His leadership style is focused on an employee-first approach because he has seen the positive impact of happy employees in a great culture on customers. He has chosen to take a people-centric approach to life to let all outcomes be driven by that philosophy. 25 years of experience in the security industry has seasoned Corey to create the next exponential evolution. Corey is the co-founder and chief executive and experience officer at Cyvitar, leading the future of cybersecurity with effortless, fully managed security subscriptions. As the first cybersecurity as a service provider, Cyvitar empowers their members to achieve successful security outcomes by providing the people, process, and technology required for cybersecurity success. You can read more about Corey on our website, eiqmediallc.com slash the change. Our theme song and sound engineering was provided by Shane Sufridi. You can listen to more of Shane's music at www.shanesufridi.com. If you have a story to share about making a difference in the lives of people you lead, or if you want to tell us what you think about our podcast, send me an email at thechange at eiqmediallc.com. Thank you all for listening. We'll see you next time on The Change. The Change is produced and distributed by EIQ Media, LLC. Elevate your emotional IQ with podcasts and content focused on leadership, mental health, entrepreneurship, and more. 